Welcome to the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. For those of you that jumped straight to this second episode because of your love for the blues and Robert Johnson music, let me give you a brief intro. I'm Doug Finn, your primary host. My nickname is Dogger. My right-hand advisor on the show is Muddy Waters, our family's chocolate lab rescue. (laughs) He sits beside me during recording and editing sessions. You may hear him from time to time issuing snorts of approval or a rough that asks for clarification. We're glad that you tuned in to Dogger and Muddy, and we look forward to you clicking back in on a weekly basis to listen to our interviews, music updates, and much more. Our focus is on the artists and people behind the scenes for blues, outlaw country, and Americana music. Since we are based in Dallas, the show will tend to have a North North Texas flavor to it. Well, that's enough of an intro. Let's discuss the blues and Robert Johnson. In 1995, I was able to visit the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland within weeks of its opening. Upon entering the glassed-in double pyramid building designed by I.M. Pei, we were directed into an auditorium. Once everyone was seated, an introductory film on the importance of rock and roll kicked off. The opening scene was a dated black-and-white movie of a hustling train terminal. Gray images of people moved to and from the trains and terminal. Soon, Robert Johnson's voice and guitar pumped through speakers. He was singing his song, Love in Vain. And about 40 seconds into the song, it transitioned from Robert Johnson to the Rolling Stones singing their version of the song, with Mick Jagger and Keith Richard leading the way. In this brief, captivating moment, the audience was educated that the blues was and is a key forebearer to rock and roll. Muddy Waters, the great blues artist of Chicago fame, along with Brownie McGee, wrote the following song. The blues had a baby and they called it rock and roll. (laughs) If you grew up loving the music of the 60s and 70s, you soon learned that many of the influences for the popular artists of the time, Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, and from the Texas front, Janis Joplin, Johnny Winter, were the blues artists from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Today on the Dogger and Muddy Show, we will center our conversation around one of those artists, Robert Johnson. The mythology of this man has always drawn great interest, and to neophytes of the blues, it sometimes, unfortunately, becomes the central story of this genre of music. In a sense, this myth sometimes overshadows both Robert's music and the work of other great blues artists. So let's look into this Mississippi-born musician, the traveled dirt roads and railroad tracks to sing his songs, Sweet Home Chicago, Terraplane Blues, Crossroad Blues, and Hellhound on My Trail, to name just a few. A sad point in history is that in 1938, a little over a year after he recorded his songs at 508 Park here in Dallas, Texas, he died of poisoning by a jealous husband. He was 27 years of age. This is the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. Listen up. It's all about the music. Let's check in on the artists, songs, and people behind the scenes. Are you listening? Our first guest is Alan Governor, 
a writer, folklorist, photographer, and filmmaker. He is the director of Documentary Arts, a nonprofit organization that focuses on historical issues and diverse cultures. He is a Guggenheim Fellow. He has published, well, he's, uh, he just updated me that he's publishing his 30th book next year. Uh, some that come to mind from my perspective are uh, Untold Glory, African Americans in Pursuit of Freedom, Texas Blues, Lightning Hopkins, His Life and Blues. In turn, Alan has, has been involved in producing, directing, and writing for over 25 films and musicals. One musical that drew specific interest for me is Blind Lemon Blues, about another great blues artist from the Dallas area, Blind Lemon Jefferson. Currently, Alan is deep in finalizing his opening of the Museum of Street Culture. We will talk about this project a little later in the interview. But first, let's talk about the blues. Alan, in reviewing your projects, several touch upon the blues. What drew you to the blues? My interest in blues goes back to my childhood. And my father, when I was four years old, got a portable record player, and he bought four records. One was Verde's opera La Traviata. One was a salsa cha-cha record. One was the 12 top hits of 1956. And the other was a kind of jazz compilation that featured Sarah Vaughan, Dizzy Gillespie, and those four records kind of shaped my eclectic musical taste over the years. A little diversity there. A lot. And it, my father was socially progressive, and we grew up in a very rapidly changing world. I grew up in an inner city Jewish neighborhood, and Boston that was becoming black during the course of my childhood. And I always had a fascination with black culture. And I think that some of the music that I heard on the 12 top hits of 1956 were Rhythm and Blues. And the other record with uh, Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, and Sarah Vaughan also had a great impact on me. So I always just loved the sound. And when I was in high school, I was part of a youth group, and we uh, had a field trip. And we got to go see James Cotton and Jay Giles. Fantastic. But, oh, my goodness, both passed away just in the last few months. I know. I know. Oh, my goodness. And so that really introduced me to live blues. And then there were wonderful outdoor free concerts on Boston Common. And so I really so enjoyed being outdoors listening to music and I liked the inner city life I liked the street life which has stayed with me when I came to Texas in 1980 to finish a doctorate at the University of Texas at Dallas I was aware of the work that had been done by uh, Chris Strockwitz with our Hooli Records and the work that Paul Oliver had done and particularly their recordings of Alex Moore that they had done in 1960 in Dallas. And I was surprised that so little had been done to document Deep Ellum, Texas Blues. Texas Blues was, at that time, not really considered much by blues scholars. The focus was on Mississippi. Or, or Chicago or Chicago blues, which was a feed-off of the Delta blues as well. Exactly. So that's what got me started, being interested in blues. Um, 
I liked the music. I loved the way it made me feel. It had a very visceral kind of grab to it that touched me deeply. Do you, from a societal perspective, how important do you see blues being? Well, blues has always fascinated me because it's... In some sense, it's a music of hardship and sadness, but it's also the music of celebration. And it's particularly, I think, important because it's a way to sort of understand a music that came out of that first generation of African Americans born out of slavery. Blues coalesced as a musical form in the 1890s. While it related to work songs and religious music of the 19th century that had its roots in Africa, blues was a distinctly American music. It was the music of a newfound leisure that came out of freedom. And within that leisure, it was, there was time to reflect. Blues is a music that puts the world in perspective, puts day-to-day -day life in perspective. It gives voice to the voiceless. It's about the yearnings of day-to-day -day life, the hardships, the struggle, the joy, the escape that comes through music, through sex, through wandering, through introspection. Let's, for a second here, let's drift to one specific artist because he recorded at uh, 508 Park, and that's Robert Johnson. Your perspective on the importance of Robert uh, in, in the blues history. Well, Robert Johnson, I think, is a seminal musician. He's become iconic in terms of our identification of blues history. And in part, that's due to the way he was rediscovered particularly by the Rolling Stones and British rock and rollers, Eric Clapton, among others. Robert Johnson, when he recorded, though, in Texas, was unknown. He was itinerant. And these were his second sessions that he did in Dallas. And that's tragic, of course, that he died. It, you know, I guess it was age. He was born in... 1911, he died in 1938. Correct. So he had a short life. Right. And it seemed like he was destined to do great things. And certainly, had it not been for John Hammond preserving those records and for Frank Driggs for bringing them forward and, you know, the King of the Country Blues LP that was released in 1961, which introduced young rock and rollers to the music of Robert Johnson, we might not know as much. Robert Johnson was a brilliant songwriter, and he was just maturing, in, in my mind, and coming into his own when he came to Dallas in 1937. His, what do you think differentiated him from the other blues, blues artists? Because tons of blues artists recorded, you know, Blind Lemon, Jefferson, and, and uh, Sunhouse, and etc., but from your perspective, what do you think brought Robert to the forefront to be kind of, quote-unquote, the king of the, of the blues? Well, I actually don't see Robert Johnson as the king of the blues. Ah. I see Blind Lemon Jefferson as being much more profoundly influential. Okay. 
he was influential in his time. Blind Lemon Jefferson, who stood at the corner of Elm Street and Central Track in Dallas, and who was brought to Chicago to record in 1925, and who also died a tragic death in 1929, recorded more than 80 sides in that short period of time. He was, during his lifetime, you know, one of the first and likely the most successful country kind of down-home blues singer of his generation. And when he died in 1929, he had $1,500 in the bank. He owned two automobiles. He had a house in Mejia. He had an apartment in Chicago. So it defies the stereotype that we right. have of the blues singer being down and out. It's not that Blind Lemon didn't have a hard life. Obviously, he was blind and, you know, had a very difficult time. But he was a, an originator of songs. He was heir to this tradition. He was, part, he was heir to that first generation of people creating blues. And I think that the importance of Deep East Texas and the history of the blues is vastly underestimated. And that's my work has been primarily focused on establishing the importance of East Texas in the history of blues. Because, in fact, the earliest blues, for me, didn't come out of Mississippi. It came out of the African diaspora of the American South. Yes. And this this Mississippi-centric approach to the blues has been one that I've always challenged through my writing and through the evidence that I have found in East Texas. The earliest writings about blues in the South were in Texas. I mean, some of the, you know, the direct connections to Africa can be seen in Texas. Texas was a place where the vestiges of the illegal slave trade had great resonance. Uh, one of my other books that I co-edited with a teacher of mine, uh, Pat Mullen, and with his teacher, Ab Abernathy, called Juneteenth, Texas. John Minton, who was a student at UT Austin with me in the 70s, wrote an article on African fiddles in Deep East Texas. And so if you go into these slave narratives that were collected in the 1930s, you see numerous references to fiddles and banjos. And it's difficult to gauge exactly what these instruments were, other than through the descriptions. They were frequently handmade. But then, when I was doing my book, Texas Blues, The Rise of a Contemporary Sound, I started talking to and learned a great deal from a man, Randolph Campbell, who is a geographic historian and who's written extensively about the geographic distribution of slavery and its history in Texas. And he noted a very important detail that in 1867, in uh, I believe it was Freestone County uh, in East Texas, when the Freedmen's Bureau registered people to vote, more than 200, when asked their place of birth, said Africa, which made me rethink everything that I had been 
writing about in terms of the presence of these African-styled instruments in East Texas. The people had a direct first-hand memory because slaves were brought to Texas into the 1830s. So in the, by the 1860s, some of these people were still alive and quite vital. They were playing this kind of music. That said, I see a certain connection between, you know, Blind Lemon. A lot of the Blind Lemon songs are done with a banjo, open G kind of tuning. Um, there are a lot of connections. I'm not so much a musicologist, but a kind of a cultural historian of music. I mean, that part of me, I'm also an artist, but the part of me that writes about blues, I would think of as being written from the point of view of a, as a folklorist and as a cultural historian. So for me, Robert Johnson is certainly important and iconic within the whole popular identification with blues. And it's not to in any way underestimate his grandeur and his excellence as a musician and as a guitar player. But his music really related a lot to the music he heard on record. You know, and he wasn't, you know, and while, you know, as a songwriter, some of his songs are deeply moving and profound in a way as blues poetry. The music itself, I mean, relates to the music of Leroy Carr, who was immensely popular, Pete Weedstraw, among others that he heard, including Blind Lemon Jefferson. So the fact is, he was an heir to this tradition and distinguishes himself in a particular kind of way, but part of it's the way he's been mythologized. Right. And to some extent, perhaps mythologized beyond recognition as to who he actually was as a young man in his 20s playing this music. I mean, it's clear from his music that he performed and recorded in Dallas that he had a, an understanding of what it took to be a commercial artist. But his music never sold very well. Right. I think Terraplane Blues was the most popular, but it didn't... And yeah, that was sure. from the first sessions in San Antonio. And when he came to Dallas, he was much more rehearsed. His music was more polished. He knew how to shape things into his music and material into what would become a record, you know, a few minutes long. So he was savvy as to what he needed to do, and his music was interesting and influential. But in terms of it being recorded at that time and immediately kind of moving into the world through other artists, it didn't do that. Blind right. Lemon was much more profoundly influential. I mean, fortunately for Robert Johnson, the fidelity of his original recordings survived. Blind Lemon, you know, because he recorded for Paramount, which had some of the worst technology of, the, of that era. You know, there are, very, there are no real masters that exist. Everything's been duplicated from record. You really get this limited sense of his virtuosity as a guitarist and as a singer. Blind Lemon had a two-octave vocal range. He had this Whoa. booming voice, a commanding presence. Anyone who heard Blind Lemon on that street corner talked about it. But the recordings are, in a way, a shadow of what his music was originally. So I think it has to be put in perspective. I mean, Robert Johnson is important by all means. It's not to take anything away from 
Robert Johnson. But it's, you know, I think one can exaggerate his importance by focusing too much on him, the myth of Robert Johnson, and not understanding the full context out of where he came. Musically, there are elements in Robert Johnson that he is credited for that Blind Lemon introduced a decade earlier. Right, right. Yeah, and I think the myth is the big differentiator. I mean, just the different stories, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that later in the show, about, uh, you know, the quote-unquote, he sold his soul to the devil. Well, that may be, he maybe never played a role in that at all. It was probably Tommy Johnson who, quote-unquote, made that statement. But we'll, we'll, we'll wander into that later. Talking about Blind Lemon, one of his right-hand men, where I believe was T-Bone Walker, I believe. Well, the young T-Bone Walker was one of Blind Lemon's lead boys. T-Bone Walker as a boy was a, his, you know, T-Bone Walker's stepfather, Marco Washington, played with uh, a street band in Dallas, it was Coley Jones, and T-Bone was a dancer, and so he was a dancer, yeah, he was one of Blind Lemon's lead boys. Blind Lemon depended on lead boys, Josh White was another lead boy, there were others, people who led him around, because he needed help. Right. And what's interesting to me is listening to T-Bone Walker, my perspective is he, he's, he comes across more jazz-oriented than blues-oriented to me. Well, T-Bone Walker straddled those worlds. He straddled the blues with jazz. He had a jazz sophistication. He could write music. He could read music. He had that. He was an arranger. You know, he had this vast musical knowledge. So, and he used, you know, big band arrangements frequently. But T-Bone Walker's, you know, I think and partly what interested me in terms of his connection, first of all, to Blind Lemon was the way he held his guitar, which was kind of flat, which was the way Blind Lemon held his guitar. Interesting. And, but Blind, he also played some of the kinds of single string kind of arpeggios that Blind Lemon also played that you hear in his music or echoed in his music. But for me, T-Bone Walker was, like Blind Lemon, truly seminal. He transformed the role of the electric guitar in blues. He defined the electric guitar as the lead instrument in blues. You know, it switched the role that was in the big bands, which was, you know, the saxophone was the lead instrument. In rhythm and blues, it's the guitar. And Blind Le- and T-Bone Walker was at that pivot point. In fact, my book, uh, Meeting the Blues, was really about people talking about, in Texas, the influence of T-Bone Walker. And much of my work has been about the influence of T-Bone Walker and the evolution of Texas blues. Because T-Bone Walker straddled those worlds, I think that's part of the reason that Texas blues was under-recognized among blues scholars. People tended to look to Mississippi. It was a grittier, small band kind of sound. I mean, it's not to say that didn't exist in Texas, because clearly Lightning Hopkins kind of straddles both worlds. Not, not the worlds of blues and jazz, but he straddles the worlds of what you would say was perhaps the Delta sound with you know, elements of the Delta sound and the Texas sound. I agree. 
I mean, as a guitarist, Lightning Hopkins was clearly a Texas guitar player. But in his best recordings, which were the ones that he did for Gold Star, the ones that he did for Decca, and his Herald recordings, that sound was more competitive with his contemporaries, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, who were also recording similar kinds of music in the 1950s. One thing back on T-Bone Walker for a second, I think you, you touched upon him as a dancer, which also led to his showmanship, which I believe he played his guitar sometimes behind his head, which Buddy Guy picked up on, and then in turn a guy named Jimi Hendrix picked up on. So showmanship was as a big did part. As Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah, as did Stevie Ray Vaughan, absolutely. Um, and your, your, your mentioning of Lightning Hopkins, i got to say, I've been blown away by, uh, I've got a multiple CD set on him, and it is great music. He, he definitely does not get enough credit for his power in the blues. Well, you need to get the two, the, the two CD set that was released by Ace Records that is a companion to my book. It oh. hasn't, it's been mainly gotten European distribution, but it's generally been reviewed as the best compilation of Lightning Hopkins. I love it. I'll do it's that. It's just not readily available in this country. Yeah. Well, I, I know you're very busy because coming up in just a few days, you're rolling out the Museum of Street Culture. So we're going to drift away from the blues here. And I want you to talk about the Museum of Street Culture. It was written up in the Dallas Morning News. There's been big uh, publicity up on the web. Please tell us more about uh, what's happening on October 1st. Well, the Museum of Street Culture is definitely, for me, an outgrowth of a lot of the work that I've done over the years. Um, in the 1980s, um, some might remember the Dallas Folk Festival, which I organized, the first festival. I came to Dallas in 1980, and I had been in work, doing work in Ohio before coming on the... Um, public kind of folk life movement you know did 1976 there was the passage of what was called the folk life preservation act which created the american folk life center at the library of congress and led to the formation and a couple of years later of the folk and traditional arts program at the national endowment for the arts and there began a movement which still continues to some extent today of doing What's, was, what is often called public folklore. And it involved organizing a kind of grassroots research into communities and community music and the presentation of this music that was truly traditional in the folk and traditional arts to present educational programs, festivals. Uh, it was a kind of work that had been started, I suppose, in the Dallas area in the 1930s uh, when John, John Lomax lived in Dallas. And, oh, I didn't and, realize that. Oh, yeah. John Lomax lived in Dallas, and the, program, and the person who was a mentor of mine, Bess Lomax Hawes, John's daughter uh, and sister to Alan Lomax, grew up in Dallas. And Bess was very interested. She had supported my work in Ohio, when I was at Ohio State and after, when I was starting to organize little festivals. 
And she really hoped that I'd stay in Dallas because no one had really done this kind of work since her father was there in the 1930s. Uh, John Lomax was a bond salesman for First Republic Bank. (laughs) And he sold a lot of bonds to people who, when the stock market crashed in 1929, lost everything. And John really, that same year, his wife died. He had five children. And he set out to try to pay people back for the money they lost. Wow. And he had a deep passion. He, you know, Growing up in Texas, he had a real passion for African-American music. I don't know that he really understood what blues was, but he loved black music, and he loved cowboy music, and he just loved collecting it, and he started collecting it, he, you know, around Texas and then into Louisiana, of course, and, you know, with his son discovered Lead Belly. Um, and, but Bess, you know, was very interested in me staying in Dallas. I mean, the, the fourth national folk festival was part of the Texas Centennial in 1936. And so I started organizing folk festivals in Dallas because, I, you know, part of what I was telling you about growing up in Boston, I loved the big public free events, Dallas you know, at that time was kind of dead downtown, and I really wanted to do more. So that part of me continues today. Yeah. Um, the Dallas Folk Festival was a big event. I mean, the biggest ones were 1986 and 1991. 1986, it was four blocks downtown Dallas. Neil Gay from the Mesquite Rodeo built an outdoor rodeo arena in downtown Dallas <laughs> next to it. City Hall. And it was the first time there had been a free outdoor rodeo in downtown Dallas since the turn of the 20th century. 1991, it was to celebrate the Arts District. And opening night of the Dallas Folk Festival was a free concert at the Morrison called Masters of Traditional Music, which was the title of my nationally broadcast radio series uh, on NPR and other public radio stations. And I stopped doing festivals in 1991. And so I was always interested in that. I started devoting more attention to writing books. I got involved in writing plays and other things that you're making, you know, documentaries and uh, art films and pursuing my own career as an artist. And Carol Adams and Pat Bywaters came to me about getting involved with what was then called the 508 Park Project Committee. And they had, through the church and through the stew pot, had acquired the 508 Park building. And they came to me because of the work that I had done writing about blues and vernacular music. When I saw the scope of what was going on through the church and through the stewpot in terms of providing social and human services to people experiencing homelessness and at-risk people, it gave me a different perspective. I had been approached prior to their acquisition of 508 Park over the years by different people that wanted to acquire that building and make a music museum. Well, the, there are 24 music museums in Texas now, today. I don't know how many there were 
five years ago, but probably somewhat less. But the fact is that the idea of a music museum had limited interest for me. I think music museums are good, particularly if you have a, you know, like Sun Studios, you have a real studio where it's still intact. Right. Stacks where the building still exists. You know, I think with this building, it was long not a studio. Very few historical artifacts. Not a lot known specifically about what was done there. Part of that mystery is intriguing, but it's, for me, it wasn't what excited me. I felt like, yes, you know, there was some Robert Johnson recorded there. That's important. But I wanted more perspective on where does this music come from? What's it significant in Dallas? Why aren't we talking about Blind Lemon Jefferson and Deep Ellum and the music that really happened in Dallas that everyone seems to still overlook? So for me, seeing it in relationship to the stew pot, I got a different perspective. And so rather than a music museum or music exhibits, I became interested in the idea of a museum of street culture. There are no museums of street culture in the world. There are museums that focus on street art, which is very contemporary, graffiti, wall art, murals. But street culture was not fully the subject because what I was interested in and what gave what made it interesting to me was the way in which street culture provides a lens of understanding the music that was recorded at 508 Park from a different perspective. If you think about the 1930s during the years of the Great Depression, that music was giving voice to the voiceless. Absolutely. Homelessness was seen differently in the 1930s. Homelessness touched many people's lives. It was the dislocation, the migration away from the south into the north, you know, the intense poverty that one sees in the WPA photographs. But just through that reality, through the slave narratives that were collected during that period. And so for me, it gave a vantage point on the music that I thought could propel a new dialogue about vernacular music, blues, Mexican music, early Western swing in new directions. And when I first mentioned the idea of the Museum of Street Culture to Pat and Bruce and to Carol and Buddy, they saw the merits of that. They realized that, yes, this, is, this gives us an opportunity to do something new and different, but also to bring together the worlds of social service, human services, together with art, ideas, history. Or as we often talk about it, that Encore Park is at the crossroads of creativity and caring. And that's great for me. And it also, for me, I saw the opportunity through the building of the amphitheater and what was going on in Encore Park, the opportunity to 
focus on areas that I had explored through the Dallas Folk Festivals that I had done during the 1980s. And it became a vantage point for me to be able to do more, to combine my interests as an artist, as a historian, as a photographer, as a filmmaker, as a folklorist, with the kind of social and cultural and arts advocacy that is a big part of my life. I love it. Alan, your time has been fantastic. I'm very excited about uh, your, your telling us about the Museum of Street Culture. I look forward to being there myself on October 1st. Thanks so much for sharing your knowledge on the blues. I hope to come back and we can visit again down the road. Great. I'd like that. Thank you, Alan. You have a great day. Talk you to you soon. soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. This past May, the Dogger and Muddy Music Show field producer, who also happens to be my wife, and I drove out on a Mississippi Delta blues trip. In a sense, we were following the trail of Robert Johnson and other great blues artists from the past. For years, there was a question as to who were the heirs of the Robert Johnson estate. In 1998, after a long battle, Claude Johnson was declared Robert Johnson's sole heir by the court. Other relatives challenged Claude in 2000. But the Mississippi Supreme Court turned back this challenge. Claude was the heir. As you'll hear later, Claude clearly remembers when his father tried to come visit him during his childhood. Claude passed away in June of 2015 at the age of 83. During our Delta Blues trip, we met with Stephen Johnson, Claude's son, and Robert Johnson's grandson to get a personal perspective on the legend of his grandfather. Stephen is president of the Robert Johnson Blues Foundation in Crystal Springs, Mississippi, which is where we met. He's also a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We started our conversation revisiting talks Stephen had with blues artists who knew his grandfather. Mr. Honeyboy Ever was the man, the last guy that played with my granddad before he passed. In fact, the night he was poisoned, they were on show together. Well, they were together. They were together that night. Mm-hmm. But Honey Boy didn't get in trouble. No, he didn't. Matter of fact, he tried to stop my granddad from getting in trouble. Okay. Yeah. He told us the story when we went down to uh, Dallas. Uh, he played at the uh, Crossroad Festival. Yeah, oh, with, with Eric Clapton. Eric in fact, Clapton. I saw him. I saw him there, yeah. Yeah, and, he, and Eric invited us down. Good. And we're going to get into that a little later. But uh, at that festival, Mr. Honey Boy told me and my dad and my brothers... He said, uh, he said, Steve, your granddaddy was playing on stage and someone brought him a jar, a jelly jar of whiskey. Yeah. Okay, clear, clear whiskey. And before he got ready to drink it, I slapped it out of his hand. Yep, yep. And he said, your granddaddy looked at me and he said, uh, as long as you live, you better not never slap no whiskey out of my hand like that. No more, no good whiskey out of my hand. <laughs> and he said, he told he told my granddad, well, Robert, you're not supposed to drink out of an open container like that. You don't know what's going on. That's right. You better not never slap, don't do that no more. Okay. So a few, uh, about 30 minutes or so passed, and uh, my granddad was still doing his set. Wow. Here come another jar. And he said, my granddad ain't been drinking. He said he got ready to slap that. My granddad looked at him like, if you do, I'm going to hurt you. Yeah. So he went on. He, he, drunk the, he drunk the whiskey. And uh, 
that night, my granddad was poisoned. That, yeah, that, right. that whiskey was laced. Right. Okay. Now, it wasn't the poison that killed my granddad that night because he actually threw the poison back up. He, right. But his immune system shut down and he contracted pneumonia. Oh, really? Yeah, that came out. That came out in the trial. The doctor uh, would, would, you know, that testified about you know what actually happened uh, about his system sitting down. Right. And there was no treatment for pneumonia until 1941. Yeah. That happened in 38. Oh yeah, my they, God. there was not there was, there was no there were no antibiotics. no antibiotics until 1941, and that happened in 38. All this came out in the trial. Now, what was fascinating was talking to both of these guys. Right. It was just like talking to Granddad because they actually lived and doing his time, right. and they walked with him and talked with him and played. You know, so they 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 were really a part of his life. Mr. Lockwood told me something fascinating. He said, Steve, your granddaddy was the only man that I knew back then that would walk around with $100, $200 in his pocket Right. back then. You know, and that was big, big money back then. He said, people say he was broke. He wasn't a broke man. He used to keep money in his pocket. He said, now, when it came to performing, he would have a, he would have a white, a white, right. clean white shirt, and he would have a suit and his tie and a paper bag, brown, big brown paper bag. And say so every time when he got ready to perform, he would he would take that suit and that shirt out and pop it. Pow! He said it'd be creased. He said it'd still be creased. Suit be just as clean. And he said he always had his shoes shine. He said your granddaddy was he was sharp back in this right. time. From here, our conversation turned to the musicianship of Robert Johnson and an exploration into the myth versus reality of Robert selling his soul to the devil. An interesting tidbit is that Tommy Johnson, who will be referenced here in just a second, was said to have sold his soul to the devil as well. Tommy and Robert were not related. They called the Freetown Boys. Oh, crap. It's, it's an area right down the street. It used to be called Freetown. Tommy Johnson, Robert Johnson, and a guy named James Osborne. They used to play in a little group called the Freetown Boys. And my granddad played this this piano. Really? Yeah. This is a 18, this a matter of fact, this, this piano by his older Tommy Johnson. It's 1890-something piano. But wow. my granddaddy would play this piano, okay? And the way they actually paid for the piano was they would, uh, then this is Mr. Arlen telling us, they would set a, a cup up on top of it, and people would give tips and sure. stuff, you know. And they paid for the piano like that by donations and stuff. But what was another thing I found out fascinating about my granddaddy from, from studying and reading? He played the harp. He played the bungalow. He played the harmonica. He was talented. Yeah. He played the harmonica, the harp, banjo. And, and uh, Mr. Lockwood said that my granddaddy could hear any song, country, gospel, blues, whatever. He didn't have to practice it. He would pick it up and just play. Really? So he had a great ear? He had a wonderful ear, a musical ear. Yeah. And uh, huh. that story about him selling his soul to the devil, he actually came back to Hazelhurst in 1930, about from 1930 to about 32, 33. He came back to Hazelhurst and he hooked up with a guy named Ike Zimmerman. 
that's going to come out. You can find that in that book that's coming out. Mr. Ike was a blues guy, a local blues guy. And he, he tutored. He tutored. And he actually mentored my granddad. And my granddad used to be with them so much until Ike's children thought that my granddad was their brother. So is... When Willie Brown kind of sends your sends your grandfather away, says he come, he come, yeah. you need you need to, you Terrible. need to study, you yeah. need to get your, get your act together. Supposedly came back a to year Hager, later, yeah. so he came Hager. here and he learned from Ike Zimmerman. Ike Zimmerman, mm-hmm. and they 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 uh, they played locally, and you know, Ike had a, it was a little house in Beauregard, Mississippi, which is right outside of Hazelhurst. Ike uh, used to take and he had a cemetery right across, like from here to that bank, right. And he took, he used to take granddad over there. <laughs> they were practicing in the cemetery. And, and uh, Mr. Ike's daughter said my granddad used to tell, grand, my, my, uh, her dad used to tell my granddad, Robert, look, you can play as loud as you want to. Ain't nobody out here going to say a word. They ain't going to complain. They ain't going to talk about it. That's a great so, so, I like that. So they was out the cemetery sitting on the bench playing. They had a bench out there on the cemetery. And uh, after those three years up, he went back to the Delta. Yeah. And he was out playing everybody. Yeah. yeah. Robert, what you, you left here, you could, now you, you, what you do? You must sold your soul to the Delta. Yeah. yeah. Stephen later told us that he went to school with the niece of Tommy Johnson. Tommy was also storied to have made a pact with the devil so that he could play the guitar as if he was possessed by the blues as well. When Tommy's niece heard the story, she was happy to claim it. Stephen, on the other hand, was more than happy to pass on that thought and let her claim it. As we talked further, both of us agreed that based on research, the story of a blues man selling his soul to the devil in reality was Tommy's story not Robert's. Most likely, when Robert's songs were republished in the early 1960s, the record company execs pulled Tommy's story of selling his soul to the devil and applied it to Robert Johnson to help sell records. At this point, our conversation with Stephen spun personal. Did, he, did your dad know him at all? He, he actually, he didn't get a chance to meet him. My dad remembers seeing his dad twice. Okay. And the way that happened was, my granddaddy came up wanting to meet, wanting to see, wanting to see his son. Yeah. And my great granddaddy stopped him on the porch. Nope, can't come in here. Can't come in here, Robert. Oh, okay. Can't come in here. And my dad remember looking out the window. Yeah. He told us about it. So I looked out the window and I saw my saw my dad trying to, you know, come in and see me. And, and, and my granddaddy stopped him. But he said, he said my dad would. Put him a little piece of money in his hand. What he call a little piece of money? Put some money in his hand to get to me. But uh, he did that twice. I remember him coming to do that twice, and he never got a chance. I never got a chance to really just go out there and hug him and grab him, and you know, because I, I, my, my granddaddy wasn't allowed. Wow. And uh, he also said, yeah. right? And he said, he said, uh, my granddaddy even tried. He asked my grand. My he said my dad actually asked my granddad if he could marry my mama, and he wouldn't allow it because of the lifestyle that my yeah. that, that he was living. Yeah, he wouldn't allow he wouldn't allow to marry a blues guy. Have you thought about your life versus the life of your grandfather's? Well, I, I think about it. I think about it quite often. You know. Uh, 
and I look at where, you know, what he accomplished in his life, and I look at the difference in the lifestyle that he lived, as opposed to the lifestyle that my that my grandmother lived, yeah. and my and my dad's upbringing. My dad was raised by his granddad, basically, and so uh, I often wonder what it would be like if. I mean, I know my dad was only six years old when his dad passed. Right. But I often wonder what it would have been like if he would have actually had a chance to really get to know him yeah. during the time that he did try to get to know him. My great-granddaddy wouldn't, wouldn't allow him to have any contact with him. Oh, really? Mm-mm. So I look at the gospel side, and I look at the blues side, and I look at my life, and uh, being a preacher, and... You know, sometimes uh, also a, a singing artist. Uh, I don't call myself a blues artist. I just I call myself a, a, a music artist. Sing, I sing. I sing. I love music. Right. But uh, I look at uh, you know, and I really feel that God chose me to bridge the gap between the blues and the gospel. As it relates to the blues being the devil's music, the reason why my dad and granddad didn't have a relationship because my great granddad said that the blues was the devil's music, and and even now, a lot of people would like to say, "Well, you can't you can't sing the blues and sing the gospel too. You got to do one or the other." But music is a form of art. Music is a form of expression. And it's not what you sing, but it's what how you live, you know. And my granddad's song, he sung about the life that he lived, but I don't live that kind of life, right. you know. Right. But I, I know where I, I know my history. I know I know my heritage on both sides. Right. And so, you know, I, I I go to different schools and different universities and high schools, and I talk about that. I talk about that. You know, you're not gonna go to hell because you sing the blues. You know, but yeah, I look at I look I look at I look at my life, and I and I I'm really honored to be a part of both the yeah. blues and the gospel because I mean both of them is, is where I is where I'm from. It's yeah. what I is what I am. Yeah, you can take a blues song and eliminate the lyrics, just just the mute, just get the music from that song. Yeah. And you can make, and then you can play that same music, and you can get some of the best gospel songs in the world. <laughs> As a matter of fact, a lot of the guys that sing the blues and the R and B, they they started in the church. Oh, absolutely. That's what the museums. Do. Yeah, they started absolutely. in the church. And and Ray Charles really caught it because he was the first one that did that crossover. He would bring that, 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 that he yes. would bring the gospel music and he would he would play he would play the same music and put blues words. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, uh, they hey they didn't want to listen to it, they tried to run him out of town, but more people began to listen to it, you know, and they said, This is oh, this is great, you know what I'm saying? But it started in the church. And I come I found out I, and and actually people have uh from Canada some ancestors of, of a preacher from Canada called me a couple of years ago and said that my granddad even made it so far as to go to Canada and he played gospel in a church but in Canada. Really? In, in Toronto. Robert. Robert played played gospel music. 
over in a church in Toronto, Canada. He said, reason why I'm telling you this is because my granddaddy, my granddaddy was the pastor of the church. And Robert came and he did a few gospel songs for him. So hey, I'm learning I'll be learning something all the time. <laughs> what story or stories draw you closer closest to your granddad? Probably with I'm a guessing with Honey Boy or maybe yeah. with Robert Lockwood, but Yeah, well actually those two, Honey Boy Edwards and Robert Lockwood, from listening to them, it was as though granddad was talking to me. Yeah. And it was because of the fact that they actually walked with him and they, they were a part of his life. Yeah. And I did get a chance to talk with someone that was actually a part of his life before they before they well, no, before they passed. So those stories that they told me were the closest thing to me. It was like, thank you for, thank you for sharing that with me, granddaddy. This way I'm looking at it. Yeah. And I wanted to really, I wanted to know more about my granddad. And, you know, I, I listened to historians. I listened to, to professors and everything. But I said, now, Lord, it's something to this. It's, it was something to Robert Johnson. It was something to the music. It was something yeah, to the right. what he sang, the songs that he sang. You know, I said, talk to me. Let me know what, what he was trying to say. And my wife can tell you this if she was here. When I when I first got the, the complete recordings and God was showing me how to keep his legacy alive, to actually do some of his songs, I said, I don't want to sing the songs and not know what I'm singing about. Why did he sing Hellhounds on my trail? Mm-hmm. Why did he sing Me and the That's Devil Blues? Why? Why? What was in it? What was in the Crossroads song? Yeah. What was in Drunken Hearted Man? And I closed up in the room, in my room, and my wife got tired of hearing that old music. <laughs> but I would play, and I would play, and God would minister to me. And when about the songs, it was like, he was talking to me about the soul of my granddaddy. When he sung, I went to the crossroad and fell and, and fell on my knees and begged the Lord to save poor Bobby, if you please. It was like he was talking about being at a crossroad in his life. Amen. He wanted to, he wanted to know the Lord. He wanted to really be saved. He wanted to have this relationship with Jesus. And then he wanted to keep doing the blues. He wanted to just because he wanted to sing about the life that he was living and he was at a crossroad but he wanted even and even in that note that he wrote they found by his by his bed you know he actually had a relationship with God and he was right there he was right there at that crossroad and you know when he passed hellhounds on the trail every time he was going to try to do good that like Paul said evil was present and the, and the one that really was made me, oh jeez, the one that made me sad. Yeah. When he talked, when he saw that drunken hearted man. Yeah. yeah. And he was saying, if I could if I could change my world, if I could change my way of living, it would mean the world to me. And he talked about his mama left him and you know, and then, and his daddy don't know where his daddy. He went through. And going from home to home, going I mean been been passed from this house to this house and nobody want to deal with him here and they, you gone boy gone on live with so and so they didn't want to deal with him and he dealt with that he never saw a husband and a wife in a, you know in a loving stable environment because he didn't see it you know and he said now lord he, he was saying in that drunken hearted man if i could change my way of living it would mean the world to me
you know. So he he was just he was at a crossroad in his life. In the song Crossroad Blues, Robert Johnson sings, I went to the crossroad, fell down on my knees, asked the Lord above, have mercy, save poor Bob if you please. Mm, standing at the crossroad, I tried to flag a ride. Didn't nobody seem to know me. Everybody passed me by. Mm, the sun going down, boy dark gonna catch me here. I haven't got no loving sweet woman that love and feel my care. You can run, you can run. Tell my friend boy, Willie Brown, Lord, that I'm standing at the crossroad. Babe, I believe I'm sinking down. For this show, we really enjoyed exploring the life of Robert Johnson and the history of the blues, both from a historian's perspective with Alan Governor and on a personal level with Robert's grandson, Stephen Johnson. If you remember back, we opened our show with Robert's song, Love in Vain. In the documentary, The Search for Robert Johnson, There's a moment where the narrator of the story, John Hammond, plays Love in Vain for Willie Mae Powell. Robert is singing to her in the song. The lyrics reference Willie Mae specifically. She had never heard the song before. As she listens, it is clear her memories flash back in time, maybe to a moment she spent with Robert. Sometimes real life is better than fiction. Due to time constraints, we did not get to discuss Alan Governor's Museum of Street Culture as much as we would have liked. The museum's grand opening was on October 1st at 508 Park. The Light Crest Doughboys, Clementino Lopez, the Los Morales Boys, and the Dallas Street Choir delivered music during the course of the day. The Lone Star Circus performed, and the blessing of the animals took place. We highly recommend checking out their website www.museumofstreetculture.org and come by the stew pot. It's across the street from 508 Park in downtown Dallas. That is where the museum's opening exhibit will be on display. Looking for Home, a year-long focus on the work of Mary Ellen Mark. The pictures of Tiny and the other people of the street are very moving. Till next time. Go to www.doggerandmuddy.com for more podcast interviews, blogs, photos, and information on the music scene. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Dogger and Muddy.